Recovery Elevator, this is episode 279. You know, realizing that I didn't have to wake up every day feeling like garbage and just like struggling to get through my day. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Odette Kressler. Thank you so much for joining us. On today's podcast, we've got Jameson. He took his last drink on August 7th, 2019. He's from Kansas City and he's 28 years old. We chat about what has worked for him during his alcohol-free journey. And I know you all will enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And hey, everyone, just as a reminder, if you haven't picked up a copy of Paul's book, Alcohol is Shit on Amazon, head on over and do so. You can also get the audio version on Audible, which is basically a six-hour podcast episode. I have mine on my nightstand, and it's been a great tool for my recovery. Alrighty, let's get started. I made it. I survived after my first week as the new voice of the RE podcast. You guys, last week was full of raw emotion and vulnerability. If you've been listening to the Recovery Elevator podcast for a while now, you know that Pablo left some big shoes for me to fill. Not only do our listeners love and look up to him, but this is a project that he's been working on for years. And honestly, I couldn't help but think, will I do this movement justice? Can I do this? So I had to dig deep. I had to pull out my Home Depot recovery tool belt. <laughs> and I grabbed a tool that I've always found to be super helpful. I whipped out my neon pink post-it note stack and I wrote myself a few permission slips. Yeah, you know, permission slips. Like the ones we would bring home when we were kids and we needed our mom to sign after school so that we could attend next week's field trip to the zoo. I heard about grown-up permission slips from a brave woman called Brene Brown. Esta chica, or should I say this gal, is one of my heroes. If you haven't heard from her, I highly recommend her books. All of them are amazing. Her podcast is also fabulous. And basically anything that you can find on her when you Google her name is worth a shot. In her words, for personal permission slips, you are in charge of your own behavior. So you're giving yourself permission to feel or act a certain way. It is setting an intention for how you want to behave in difficult situations. So last week, when I zoomed out and looked at the work that I had cut out for myself with the podcast, I felt so many emotions. I felt doubt, fear was creeping in, and that's when I decided to write myself a few permission slips. I give myself permission to be scared. I give myself permission to make mistakes during this process. I give myself permission to ask for help. I give myself permission to feel uncomfortable I give myself permission to fail, permission to succeed. I give myself permission to try again. I give myself permission to love myself throughout this process. Gosh, it felt good just letting it out. Simply acknowledging that I was feeling extremely vulnerable, that all of those day one emotions that I was chatting with you all about last week felt super present in me. And honestly, I just wanted to run away. But as I gave myself permission for all those things when writing out the permission slips, I gained courage, and I realized that the answer wouldn't come from running away, but from running towards. I've been wanting to be a part of this space for some time now, and now that the time is finally here, I can't give myself permission to back off due to fear. I choose love. I'm here to share a message, and I'm so grateful that I get to do this. So, next time you find yourself in a bind, remember you can write yourself a permission slip, or two, or 100 as many as you need. They're such a powerful tool. All right, 
Eso es todo. That's my weekly dose of rambles on the RE podcast today. And before we hear from Jameson, let's hear from my favorite resource on this journey, Cafe RE. When departing from alcohol, here are the two main keys to success. You need a supportive and loving community. And you have to create accountability with others who have the same goal in mind. Whether you want to ditch the booze for a month, a year, or are simply sober curious, you'll get both of these on Cafe RE. These groups are unsearchable on Facebook. What is said can only be seen by members. You get 24-7 access to a group full of others whose priority it is to live an alcohol-free life. These groups are capped at under 400 members to ensure quality connection. In Cafe RE, you'll find that quitting drinking can be fun. For $19, you get access to the community, get paired with an accountability partner, attend educational online webinars, attend in-person meetups, participate in book club, movie club, and more. You'll also get discounts to retreats and sober travel trips. 15% of monthly fees goes towards our service project where we work with a nonprofit helping those who have been affected by addiction. Another portion goes to in-person meetups. Go to recoveryelevator.com and use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. Again, use the promo code OPPORTUNITY to waive the setup fee. I can't wait to see you there. Jameson, how are you? I am doing great, Odette. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. It's, uh, it's very exciting to have you on board. And I know we connected via the Recovery Elevator email. And when I saw your message pop in, I was like, I want to have him on the podcast. I want him to share his story. <laughs> so I'm really happy you said yes. Is this the first time you're ever interviewed for something like this? Yeah, I believe so. Awesome. Well, thanks again. And let's get right into it. When was your last drink? Uh, so my last drink was on August 7th. 2019. Okay, so coming up on a year here in a couple months. Yep. Let listeners know a little bit about yourself. Do you have a family? Where are you from? What are your hobbies? What do you do for a living? And then for our golden rule number 22, what do you like to do for fun? All right. So uh, I'm from Kansas City, Missouri. Um, I'm 28 years old. Uh, for the past four years or so, I've been working in various roles as a support staff for uh, special education at a couple different schools. I'm actually starting grad school in the fall to hopefully become a therapist. I'm single and I, with no kids or anything right now. And for fun, I like to make music and read, play video games, hike and camp, and I like to travel when I can. Oh, the travel. We're, I can't wait until we can travel again. We're still recording in the middle of this yeah. pandemic. And I'm just like, when is it going to be different? And we're going to be able to travel. But I'm also trying to just enjoy the moment and not think about it yeah. too much. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. What's the favorite? What's your favorite place you've ever been to? Well, been been quite a few places. Uh, the the biggest trip I've ever gone on, I would say, was uh, to uh, China in 2013, I believe. But my favorite place uh, to go that I go to on a regular basis is uh, Leadville, Colorado, which is uh, way up in the up in the Rockies up there. Awesome, just being in nature. Yes, that's that's what it's all about for me. That's awesome. Can you give listeners a little background on your history with drinking? When did you start? When did you realize it was a problem? And just walk us through a little bit about your history with alcohol. Yeah, so 
I, I first started drinking technically when I was, oh gosh, probably like 14, 13 or 14. But for the first year or two of my drinking, that was just like a, like a shot glass worth of wine with dinner every night. Cause my, my mom would give my brothers and I that just I'm not exactly sure why, I guess for the health benefits, but so that was, that was never enough to like, to really, you know, draw me in and, and get hooked on it. But the first time I really got drunk was probably when I was 16 or 17. So I'd say 2007 or 2008, I didn't really understand the difference between hard alcohol and beer, which was a a big mistake for for somebody for somebody at my age I was drinking vodka and orange juice with a friend of mine that we had stolen from my parents and not knowing how much I should be consuming that night ended very poorly with me puking in my bathroom and my mom coming and discovering me doing that but you know from then on I never I never really I would I wouldn't say I ever really had a normal relationship with alcohol like I wasn't a I wasn't a quote unquote normal drinker at at really any point in my life but the really consistent problematic drinking didn't really start until I was about probably 21 and started having like access to you know as much as I as I wanted was anything happening around that stage in your life that it may have had that escalate or just just having access to it? It was, you know, I was in college and I was I was spending a lot of time with with people that were, you know, pretty heavy drinkers. I, you know, I I wouldn't be one to point fingers and say that whether or not they were alcoholics, but good chance that that some of the people I was spending time with definitely had a had a problematic uh, drinking habit mm-hmm. um, and you know just being in college being younger and something for me throughout my life has always been kind of trying to you know trying to be cool and social anxiety and you know it's it's really hard to be cool when you're anxious and you're thinking about trying to be cool all the time. So alcohol definitely was a very easy resource for me feeling like I was cooler. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. That confidence booster and that social lubricant. Yeah, exactly. exactly. So what, what happened after that? After you were 21, you noticed it started ramping up and then walk us through a little bit of how it kind of escalated. Yeah. So it it started becoming definitely a very consistent thing, like every day, every night. I mean, not so much in the daytime necessarily, but definitely every night. And I noticed it was a problem pretty early on around then, like I would say around the time I was turning 22. And I actually did stop drinking for a year around that time. And it was exactly a year from, I think, the summer of 2013 to the summer of 2014 and I you know after having gone a year being what I would definitely call a dry drunk uh, because I wasn't doing any sort of program or anything like that I decided well hey I've gone a year I I must not have a problem with this and so one year to the day I started drinking again and 
continued basically until I stopped nine and a half, ten months ago, and it sort of steadily increased over that time, which was like seven years or so, maybe. Yeah, and continued like that. Yeah, it's our brains definitely make us believe sometimes what we most want to believe, right? Even if that's not the best Mm -hmm. for us. But you were like, I got a year. I'm good. I don't have a problem. Mm -hmm. And then did you find that you started drinking the same amount kind of where you left off? Pretty much. I'd say when I when it started to after I after I had my year sober and I started drinking again, I was always mostly a beer drinker. I would definitely drink hard alcohol regularly, but beer was always my thing. And I would I started out consistently drinking probably a six pack, you know, six pack of tall boys or like, you know, six or seven beers a night. And part of the problem with convincing myself I didn't have a problem was that I would almost exclusively drink in like the late afternoon or evening. So I was able to tell myself, you know, well, I don't drink in the morning and Mm -hmm. I don't drink before work or at work. So clearly I don't have a problem, right? You know, because only alcoholics are drink in the morning and at their throughout their work day. Yeah, we almost like if you haven't had those yets, like I haven't drank at work mm-hmm. yet, or if you, there's so many yets. And if you if you don't fall into that category, it, it was very similar with my story. I was like, no, I definitely don't fall under the category because I haven't done this yet. And of course, mm-hmm. we just keep justifying it. But once you went back to drinking after that first year, I'm curious, in the back of your mind, did you ever did you know that you would eventually go back to not drinking was there something that was kind of seeded during that first long term that you just couldn't kind of get rid of afterwards yeah I I don't know if I if I necessarily thought that I would ever go back to not drinking but I think you know in the back of my mind I think I always kind of had a sense that something wasn't quite quite right or you know, normal about what I was doing. And then, you know, over the years, that sense sort of started building and becoming more in the forefront of my mind until it was, you know, to the point where, you know, I can't ignore this anymore. This is definitely becoming a problem and I'm going to have to do something about it at some point. Was there an event that made you go sober again and and start this journey once again after all of that time in between or did you just were you just sick and tired of being sick and tired and were just ready to start again it it was a combination of of kind of both those things you know as far as like rock bottoms go i there are so many uh so many moments and times in my life that i could think of as as rock bottoms but in the last couple years of my drinking, it, it came to my attention and my family's attention that alcoholism was becoming a huge struggle for my younger brother. And that resulted for him in doing rehab a couple of times, spending some time in the hospital here and there with acute withdrawal and having seizures and all kinds of terrible stuff and you know my brother and I are I like to say our 
basically the the same person. So that kind of was a wake up call for me, and you know, she gave me a hint that while his his issues are more severe than mine at this point, if I don't, you know, if I don't get my my shit together, then you know, I'm probably destined for a lot of the same issues, you know, if, if not worse, if, you know, something, something specifically bad were to happen. So yeah, that, that was a big thing for me. And it didn't, you know, it didn't take at first the wake up call that, that, you know, his experience was, and it definitely led to me drinking more to deal with the stress of his situation but it also sort of put me on a path towards recovery and I think where I am today. Uh, thanks for sharing that. I just can really relate. Uh, my father is a recovering alcoholic and it's really hard when, when someone in your family is also experiencing the same or similar struggles because, like you said, you know what it can evolve into and at the same time, our brain, if you haven't learned any other coping mechanisms... You can't have this wake-up call while also processing all of these feelings and, and grief and mourning. And then the only thing you know how to do is something that's very similar to the thing that's really hurting another family member. And that's very similar yeah. to what was happening in my family. But I also noticed that, for me at least, I don't know if it was similar to you, I'm curious to hear, because my dad was in a worse place than I was if we had to categorize it then mm. then the spotlight wasn't on me and I was also able yeah. to get away with it more and and just it was hard because that I wasn't the main spotlight so I was almost just here on the side and it almost made for me my journey just escalate a little bit faster and yeah. it's it's just very interesting how it plays out in family dynamics and Thanks for sharing. I mean, I think it's very neat that he served as a wake up call at the same time and that and that helped yeah. you as well. Yeah, I, I I can definitely relate to, you know, the spotlight being taken off of you and it's when somebody else has a much more uh much more apparent problem, like, you know, when right before his last uh my brother's last time doing rehab, which was basically forced on him by me and my family he did he agreed to do an outpatient program but before that he spent three days in the hospital with acute withdrawal and you know one of those days that he was in there I went and visited him with my family and I left with my mom and we went to eat dinner and I'm you know having drinks at dinner right after <laughs> leaving the hospital with my brother who's there for for alcohol withdrawal and it was like yeah well i'm not in the hospital right now i'm not about to go to rehab so you know nobody's really worrying about me all that much right now myself included but it was definitely starting to be much more on my radar at that point and that was also around the time that i started the the great uh, great failed experiment of moderation you know <laughs> Yeah, I still haven't heard one person on this podcast that has said that moderation works. And I was one who also thought that I would, I'm going to be the one that makes it work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, I guess we all have to kind of experiment and prove ourselves wrong and, and, and kind of mm -hmm. get a little, little gut check. And, and it's humbling to, to just be like, okay, I know I heard it before, but 
I guess it doesn't work. <laughs> yeah, the field research. <laughs> yeah, the famous field research. So on your sobriety date, you just woke up and you said, I'm, I'm done drinking then. You didn't have a, a catastrophic event. You just woke up and you were just ready to, to attempt this. Did you have like a deadline or were you just like, I'm not going to drink today? No. So, so what happened was I was at the time when I, on my sobriety date, I was in Colorado in Leadville, like I mentioned earlier, this was when I was trying my best to moderate, which overall the, I was successful in moderation in the sense that at this point I was able to be going a good number of days in between drinking, but every time I would drink in this time, it was like an all out binge and, you know, there's nothing good about that health wise. And at this time, I was also starting to look into, you know, how do I recover? How do I, how do I deal with this? And I had, I had purchased a copy of, uh, the book Refuge Recovery, which is a Buddhist inspired path to addiction recovery. And I was reading that in Colorado. And I was also preparing to climb Mount Elbert, which is just outside of Leadville there. And is also the highest uh, peak in Colorado, as far as I know. And so what happened was I, I stopped drinking for the two nights leading up to the climb because I knew I there was no way in hell I was going to be able to do it if I was, you know, hungover and dehydrated and all that good stuff. And so I didn't drink those two nights leading up to it. And I climbed this mountain and it was one of the coolest things I've ever done short of quitting drinking. And I'm climbing up this mountain and I'm thinking, you know, this is so amazing. And I didn't think I was going to be able to do it. Maybe I can also do this whole not drinking thing if I can do this. And so I basically just told myself, let's see how long you can go. I'm not going to tell myself I'm never going to drink again because, you know, I've been constantly failing myself every time I've told myself that. And so I tried this whole let's just see how long I can go thing. And about, you know, two weeks into it, I'm like, hey, you know, I'm I'm doing a pretty good job with this. Let's just try and make this stick. And right about that time, I actually went to my first refuge recovery meeting, which thankfully they had a group in Kansas City, to my surprise, a really small group, but a group. And I've been doing that since then. And it's been amazing. It's it changed my life, you know, completely. Talk about a confidence booster, the fact that you weaned yourself off basically in preparation for this climb. And then you mm -hmm. did this climb, which I'm sure was really challenging. I love hiking. So that just sounded so much fun. And so, I mean, the feeling of getting to the top of a peak, like it feels just yeah. amazing. And like you said, yeah. it's hard to, to trump that feeling. And the fact that you did that while you were basically detoxing from the substance. Mm -hmm. Like what perfect timing. Timing is never a yeah. coincidence. Timing's always perfect. And, and I always say these are Rumi's words, but it's always rigged in our favor. And how how cool. Thanks for sharing that. Do, do, tell me you took a photo when you got to the top. Tell me there's some oh. evidence. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. It was definitely my profile picture on Facebook for the next, like, you know, three months, probably. Uh, you're going to have to email it to me. That, that sounds so great. And like I said, I think our brain really, um, I mean, I have toddlers and just like those confidence boosters, like when they learned how to not use a diaper and when they learned to walk, like those are monumental <laughs> milestones that your brain really just leverages. And, and, and like you said, then you believe that you can do hard things because we can do hard things. Yeah. But a lot of the times it's really hard to have that confidence and to not have that self-doubt that we've had for so long kind of creep in and and just sabotage our efforts. So that's really cool that it was right at the same time. And then I know you did mention on that email coming back to the, is it refugee recovery, recovery, refugee, Re refuge recovery. Refuge recovery. Yeah. Um, I know you mentioned that on the email that you sent us and you also mentioned that Buddhism basically saved your life and really has helped you on this journey. Can you speak a little bit more about that and just chat with us about what concepts in Buddhism or how it all play, plays out in your recovery now? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I've been I've been interested in on and off practicing Buddhism since I was right around this time I started drinking. Actually, my older brother got me into it because he became obsessed with like Tibetan Buddhism and the Dalai Lama and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, I, I could never really fully engage with it throughout the years of my drinking because that just, you know, drinking and substance abuse does not lend itself to, like, mindfulness and meditation. <laughs> they are not friends. Uh, I was – when I was trying to moderate uh, my drinking about a year ago, I was also starting to get back into a meditation routine at this time, and I was listening to another podcast, Secular Buddhism, and they had an interview with the author of Refuge Recovery, and uh, and I was like, what, like mm -hmm. a Buddhist path to recovery from addiction? Like, this is the exact thing that I need right now. And so I bought the book and, you know, started reading it in Colorado, which was like the perfect place to be reading it and contemplating all this stuff. Yeah. So, you know, meditation has probably been the key component of of my sobriety. And then just the different uh, different concepts in Buddhism, like, you know, seeking the most of Buddhism, like if you boil it down, the Buddha taught suffering and the end of suffering and our suffering comes from dissatisfaction you know mm -hmm. just our existence and wanting th things that we think will help us cure that dissatisfaction but of course never do you know substances or material things and that's why it was, it's just so perfect for dealing with addiction because substance abuse is just a temporary solution to a a problem that really we we all have some people just have it to a greater extent than others and then just one one of the other concepts being a the idea of impermanence that you know nothing nothing is permanent everything comes to an end and that's a, that's a big thing for me with when it comes to dealing with 
the concept, you know, the ideas of cravings, you know, craving to feel differently than I do right now. So when I have like a craving for a substance or alcohol or to feel differently than I do right now, I try to remind myself that this is not going to last forever if I can just sit with this and feel it and not try to run away from it, it's going to go away a lot faster than if I freak out and, you know, try, try really hard to change it, which is another form of attaching yourself to that feeling. So yeah, just learning to let things pass and also kind of the, you know, it, it's a big, it, it ties right in with AA and the serenity prayer and, you know, learning to accept things you cannot change, you know. Totally, big, totally. Big thing. <laughs> I love it. And you, and you beat me. My next question was, what do you do when you experience a craving? And it, it sounds like this is really like all of these concepts have really just helped you to just stay. You know, I, I was listening to an author that I really love recently and she said, you know, everyone talks about self-care and how self-care is giving yourself a manicure or treating yourself to your favorite meal or whatever. These, all of these lists now and self-care is kind of an overused term now, but she's talking about, I've learned that to me, she said at least real self-care is staying and not abandoning myself when I'm feeling all of these things that I don't want to be feeling, when I'm feeling fear, yeah. shame, um, when I'm when I'm triggered, when I have a craving, because she's actually also a recovering addict. I'm talking about um, this mm -hmm. author. Her name is Glennon Doyle. But she said that that's what to me self-care means, means staying and not abandoning myself. And the way that she just said that statement, that's basically what you're talking about and not buying into this idea that this is how you're going to feel always and just trusting yeah. that that it'll pass. So that's really neat. I also feel like all of these Buddhist concepts can apply to to real life. I keep coming back to this pandemic and it, it sounds like mm -hmm. we're all in recovery together because all of these things are what we need to be practicing in and outside of these cravings. Like drinking is but a symptom and it's just the one thing that some of us are focusing on. But like you said, to a certain degree, everyone has something going on and we all could benefit from these teachings. So that's kind of cool that you mm -hmm. can merge everything that you learn at these meetings, not only towards your recovery journey, but just apply it to life as well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's that's really cool. And then are the do you have not now, of course, but are these in person meetings like AA meetings, but these are also in person meetings? The, yeah, the, uh, up until everything, you know, took a turn with the pandemic, we were doing um, in person meetings once a week. Yeah, I mean, we we've been doing zoom since, you know, since uh, about mid March for us here in Kansas City. And yeah, I mean, refuge recovery and related like Buddhist recovery groups of which there are a few we all have have been offering online meetings since long before the pandemic. So I do those a couple or every once in a while. And I've been doing more of those since the uh, since the pandemic. And just because, you know, I was starting to think I probably need more than one meeting a week because yeah. <laughs> it's just better safe than sorry, you know. <laughs> It's nice. And it's community too. So it, that's, that's really neat to hear. So other than I know you said meditation's a, a big component and these meetings, 
Is there anything else in your recovery tool belt? Anything else that's working for you in the last nine ish months? Podcast definitely. Uh, recovery elevator was a a big one. And uh, I well not other than than refuge recovery and meditation. Just a. Uh, Getting into a healthier routine in my life, especially since quitting drinking. I mean, almost exclusively since quitting drinking because uh, <laughs> drinking was never conducive to healthy routines. But yeah, like little things like, you know, being on top of myself with making sure I, you know, just like brush my teeth every day. And like I got in the habit of like making my bed every morning, which was like, a tiny thing, but it like really, <laughs> it really makes a difference. Me. Yes. Know. Who'd have thought? Um, <laughs> and uh, I, I just, I actually just um, went to my first AA meeting, traditional AA meeting yesterday. Congrats. Which was an in-person meeting, although it's like pretty socially distanced. But we are the Kansas City area is very slowly starting to open back up, which uh, one of the first things to kind of get back to normal is the recovery groups. So uh, that was a, a new thing for me. Oh, yoga, yoga. That's the one thing I forgot. Do you I practice do, uh, often? I, I try to. I'm a little bit flaky with it here and there, but I do a an awesome class called Y12SR, Yoga for 12-Step Recovery. Oh, cool. Um, and yeah, so it's like half 12-step meeting, half yoga class. And that's actually how I found out about the AA group I started going to. You know, we were doing it, I started doing it in person and then doing it on Zoom for a while. And then, yeah, it's been a, it's been a great, great help. That's awesome. It seems like you have some some good tools and that are working for you. And, and I'm happy that you're familiar. You were familiar with Zoom and all of these changes beforehand, because I do feel like mm -hmm. a lot of people I, I've been doing Zoom for a long time, too. And it's been it's a it's a bridge that a lot of people have to cross. And I know that this pandemic and just being in quarantine has brought up a lot of triggers. And, and for people that live alone, <laughs> it's hard. Have you have you felt like it got a little bit harder? Or did you have any new triggers when all of this started and when the world started kind of going crazy? Yeah, it, it definitely had a big impact on my routine. Because when it hit for us here in Kansas City, you know, it was kind of it was kind of unexpected, but the school that I have been working at was just going on spring break at the time. And as far as I knew, because for us here, this all kind of crashed down pretty fast. As far as I knew, when spring break started, we were just going to be going on spring break conveniently timed, and yeah. then we were going to be going back and then you know a couple days into spring break it's like oh well we're gonna be not going back to school meaning i'm not going to be going back to work for the foreseeable future and then a couple days later it's like nope no school for the rest of the school year and i kind of i started going i did go back to work after about two weeks for just a few hours a day to kind of help out with various things with a very limited number of staff. But it did, yeah, it did do, do a number on my routine, uh, which is a huge, 
part of me staying sane. And so that was that was a little bit hard for a little while. It you know it was having an an impact on like my my meditation mindfulness practice. And that's around the time I decided, well, I need to start upping my my meetings and doing more of these Zoom meetings, which helped a lot to sort of get me back on track as as much as I can right now. I feel like for many of us, routine really just marks a cadence day by day and we just get comfortable. And I think it's actually very important in recovery, just my two cents. But I think that routine matters Absolutely. and really helps our brain just have a sense of, of comfort while still being uncomfortable and facing all of these feelings that come and go when you're not drinking. So it I, for me also, I mean, it, it was a curveball, but I mean, I feel like you were super self-aware and just brutal honesty always. I, I always say I think it really helps in recovery and you just have to know, like, you know, I'm feeling a little bit wobbly. Maybe I should add a couple more meetings. So Sounds like you have a lot of self-awareness, a lot of built-in self-awareness, and, and that's great. Have you noticed that's been kind of new for you and, and is progressing as you are further and further away from your last drink? Or, or what, what are your thoughts on like self-awareness growing? Oh, definitely. I've definitely noticed a lot more self-awareness since I, since I quit drinking and you know the meditation and mindfulness really helps with that a lot and also just like you know quitting drinking and and learning so much more about you know whether it's alcoholism or just addiction in general i think has made me you know i i, I don't want to i don't want to toot my own horn but <laughs> i think it i think it's made me a a, a lot more understanding and like compassionate for for what other people are going through with you know whatever it may be in their life whether it's substance abuse or anything else and I think it's it's helped me to be a lot less judgmental of of people which is you know something I can definitely be prone to even now like certainly nowhere near being uh non-judgmental of everybody at all times <laughs> We all struggle with that. We all struggle with that. But of course, I just do want to say you should absolutely toot your own horn. We, I don't think we do enough of that. And I think that we can stay humble and toot our own horn at the same time. So kudos to you. And it, it, is, it is hard to not be judgmental entirely. I don't think we can ever get there. But I do feel like there's something to say about the more grace that you give to yourself. It just immediately translates into grace that you give to others and it's it's always a projection right how we how harshly we judge others is how harshly we judge ourselves so it just also seems like the self-awareness growing i think also is parallel to self-love growing and just that acceptance mm -hmm. of like flaws and acceptance of not not seeking this perfection and knowing that we're all just human and we're all just trying the best that we can yeah absolutely so I have a question that that's kind of a new one. I don't think Paul used to ask it, but I'm I'm curious. You're the first person that I asked this to. What's a story in your life that you want to rewrite or something that maybe you used to tell yourself a lot before starting this journey that you want to break free from or kind of rewrite a narrative that you have about yourself? Does anything come to mind? So I I don't know if I would have a particular or specific 
answer to that, but what I what I can say is that I definitely for a long time, you know, thought of the my issues with substance abuse and my issues with like anxiety, whether it's social or generalized and like depression and things like that, but particularly substance abuse. You know, I always, I I kind of for a long time thought that somehow that that was like my fault, you know, that I'm just not controlling myself enough. And that's why like, I am like fucking up my life so much and that it's, uh, yeah, like that, that somehow the, it, it, it's, it's all because I am not a good person. And that's been something I've definitely been coming to terms with and trying to f- forgive myself for over the past nine, 10 months. It, it makes me think of the, this great joke by the, comedians uh mitch hedberg where it's like alcoholism is a disease but it's the only disease you can get yelled at for having <laughs> uh, and it's like for a long time you know i thought you know i this is all on me uh, and and refuge recovery and buddhism really taught me that you know it's not your fault that you're this way but it is your responsibility to deal with it and learning that really made me stop beating myself up so much and getting to a point where I can feel like, you know, I'm not a terrible person. I just uh, was using an easily accessible resource that pretty much everyone uses to some extent mm-hmm. to deal with some some problems that I had in my life. And can't really blame myself for that, you know, at least not anymore. Yeah, I mean, our brain, like I mentioned earlier, is just grabbing on to whatever it knows can help us survive. It's like at whatever cost, if it's going to help me survive. So so substances and drinking work until they don't, right? We say this all the time, but you can't beat yourself up for it. And gosh, I don't know if there is anything that makes me feel more uncomfortable than that shame Mm-hmm. that you are describing of how you used to feel and how you thought that it was your fault and and how like when we think how am I not stronger than this or when you feel like you can just will yourself you get mad at yourself for not being able to will yourself out of situations like these and it's it's so much more profound than that and and it starts with that separation that you said you learned mm-hmm. at, at at the meeting so I'm really glad that that you feel that way now and then you can see it like that because then you can move forward without mm-hmm. feeling like you're carrying a 50 pound book bag on you every step of the way you know it, the road can be lighter and the road can be fun and you can be someone who chooses to react different to these circumstances and you are so you should feel very proud of yourself i i i definitely do especially at this point you know every day that I can go without without drinking, I I'm pretty damn proud of myself. <laughs> yeah, we I I always when you said toot your own horn and made me think um, earlier, <laughs> Paul and I always joke about when we went on a retreat to Denver once we had this post-it and it said nice job on it and <laughs> and now we love it and we use it for everything like when we notice we have a good day and we got a lot of work done, 
we're like, nice job. Because during that, <laughs> during that retreat, we would, we, we were working together and we had a lot to do and, and we kept trading it. Like we kept trading it back and forth, back and forth. Every time <laughs> one of us did something nice job, nice job, because it's, it's also something that we need to learn how to do. You know, it took us so many years of that beating ourselves up and all that negative self-talk and it sounds so so cheesy and and corny but it's equally important to kind of train our brains to basically high five ourselves and pat ourselves on the back because we we haven't done that in in a really long time and and i think it it makes a difference and it's it's super important so sounds like you're doing an amazing job i'm definitely doing the best i can and that's that's all that I can ever expect. Yeah. Of myself. And you're so young. I'm curious. Did your social dynamic change? I know I know you're in your 20s. And, and when you do people know you don't drink? How has all that worked out for you since you decided to kind of go on this path? It's interesting. You know, I mean, honestly, part of the reason I, I knew I had to stop drinking was because I was my social life was getting worse with my drinking because, you know, like I, I've always been somebody that's pretty open to talking to people about my problems if I feel like they want to know. And when I was drinking a lot and really drunk, it didn't really matter so much if they seemed like they wanted to know. (laughs) And uh, like once I was at a, shortly before I quit drinking, I was really drunk at a party and I was like telling some guy like who I had just met basically about my issues with drinking, like while I'm making a cocktail. And he's like, well, you know, you don't have to have that, that drink there. And I was like, look, I don't think you get what I'm saying here. (laughs) This is not an option for me at this point. You know, I bought, once I had one, it's, so all bets are off. So honestly, with my social life, you know, most of my friends, pretty much all of my friends outside of my recovery groups drink to some extent. Some of them definitely heavier than others. And some of them, you know, if they decided they might have a problem, they might have a problem. But for me, it's, it's you know, it's been challenging with socializing and being around people drinking, but it's never really felt like it's making me at risk of relapsing. And I honestly look at it as just practice for doing this in the long run and getting better at it. And uh, I'd say all of my friends have been really supportive, supportive of me. You know, they're there are some people that, you know, were just drinking friends, but they weren't even friends to the point where, like, I had to make any effort to cut them out of my life when I stopped. So it it hasn't been all that difficult. If anything, I can, now that I'm, since I haven't been drinking, I I really find that I can be able to appreciate spending time with my, my, my friends and my family more than I used to because, you know, pretty much any time I would be spending with my friends when I was drinking, I was drinking with them. And when I was drinking, all that I really cared about was when I'm having my next one and, you know, making sure that I can get as drunk as possible. 
It robs us from the present moment. I, I, I often say that so many memories are blurred out because I was just thinking of, I wasn't in the moment. I wasn't present. I was thinking about what was next. So that's really, exactly. yeah, that's really nice that you have that back. So I, we could talk for a while. I'm having a lot of fun. How are you feeling? <laughs> I'm feeling great. I'm once we got started, I was like, you know, my anxiety pretty much went out the window. So like, that's nice. <laughs> okay, that's great. We have reached the rapid fire round. So I have a couple more questions before I let you go. If you can answer these in 30 seconds or less, that would be fabuloso. Are you ready? Absolutely. Okay. If you could talk to day one, Jameson, what would you say to him? Oh, man. I would say just, uh, you know, be patient with yourself and just, yeah, know that you are, know that you're, you're stronger than these problems that you think you have, you know, and that you're stronger than alcohol or stronger than substances. Love it. What is a light bulb moment you have had during this journey? It was like an everyday light bulb you know, moment for the first like <laughs> months of, you know, realizing that I didn't have to wake up every day feeling like garbage and just like struggling to get through my day. So that was a big thing for me, especially in like the very early stages of recovery, but still, still remains a, a big deal. Yeah. Hangover free mornings never get old. Yeah. Never. <laughs> what is a yeah. memorable moment that sobriety has given you other than climbing that amazing mountain? Oh, man. <laughs> that was that was my first answer on my notes here. Uh, but, but no, but I have backup. So other than that, uh, I can't really think of uh, like specific things necessarily, although I, I can think of one, but it's like, you know, realizing Every time I do something that I realize I couldn't do if I were drinking or would have been made a huge challenge by drinking, like the first time I went to a, a concert, like a friend's band was playing and I went to a concert and I'm like sober and I realized, hey, I can drive to and from this concert and I don't have to worry about ubers or finding a ride and leaving my car at the venue or you know leaving before i get too drunk to drive yeah. or risking a dui that's memorable know. not having to deal with all of those all of those parts of the equation everything becomes simpler <laughs> yes simpler <laughs> what are some of your favorite resources in recovery Definitely Refuge Recovery and all of the other uh, Buddhist-based recovery books and communities and Recovery Elevator, of course, was a big one when I found that. Yoga, like I said, and now AA that I'm getting into. Definitely all those. What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are just starting to think whether or not they want to ditch the booze? So I would say... If you're struggling with drinking or if you think you have a problem, you probably do, which is something one of my group members told me once. But I think if you think you have a problem, you should you should really just like start looking into literature, but also really like looking into the different communities that are out there when you kind of, you know, when you find something that you think appeals to you, just like put yourself in it, like, you know, whether or not you're you're quitting yet or you think you're ready yet just get yourself in there because 
you know, one of the reasons it took me so long to quit it was that I had just like this weird impression about like people in recovery. And I thought it was like, oh, those people are weird. And I'm I don't want to be a part of that weird, like, you know, you're cult. like, I don't want to join the cult. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't want to join the cult. But then when I started like, you know, reading about all this stuff and and then like especially when I, you know, started like getting involved in in groups, I realized that you know, these, these people are amazing. These are some of the best people that I've met in my life. And I wish I had found all this sooner. So definitely that. And yeah, you, you can't know, you know, what it's going to give you, you know, the benefits that quitting drinking is going to give you until you actually do it. So maybe just try it for a little while, a little while, like I did without, you know, making yourself any promises and see what happens. You can always go back. Yeah, you can always go back, but you hopefully you won't want to. <laughs> and before we depart, give listeners your own you may need to ditch the booze if line. Oh uh, yeah, I've been I've been uh trying to pick a good one for this, but I think <laughs> mine is you may need to ditch the booze if you're so hungover and sleep deprived that you are barely capable of driving to pick someone else up from rehab. Oh. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Which is something that happened with me when I, when my little brother was in his final round of rehab before he <laughs> got sober. Oh, that is definitely a keeper. <laughs> I haven't heard something similar to that one before. Uh, Jameson, I enjoyed this. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and sharing your story. Thank you so much. Take care. Keep it up. I'm going to keep you accountable on that photo of you on the mountain. I still want to see that. So you have to send it to me. Okay. (laughs) I will. All right. Take care. (laughs) You too. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Very well, Timari. That wraps up our interview for today. And before I say adios, I want to give you a little challenge this week. Do yourself a favor and according to how you're feeling and what you're going through right now, write yourself a permission slip. And if you're feeling like you want a little extra accountability and support, snap a picture of it and share it on your Instagram stories. Tag us at Recovery Elevator so we can send you a virtual high five and share with our community. Remember that you're not alone. And together, well, together is always better. Recovery Elevator, we took the elevator down. We got to take the steps back up. We can do this. Love you guys. 